awk and amazed at what you just taught. <laughs> Take it away, Drew. I was hoping you'd lead that head up here with me while I was preaching, Sean. <laughs> well, hey, I've got my daughter, Abby Joy, with me. She's going to help this morning as we kick off the sermon. Uh, we are continuing our series, Union, Communion, and Partnership. And for those who've been tracking with us, we spent uh, several months this year looking at Jesus' prayer for unity in John 17. Two weeks ago, Jimmy kicked off a new part of our series where we are looking at Acts chapter 2, what it means to be the people of God, the people of unity. And then later this year, we're going to look at Ephesians 4 and look at God's plan for unity. And so today, we're going to be studying Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and we're going to read the whole passage together. Abby Joy, why don't you start it off, and then I'll finish it. When the day of Passover came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Christians and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some of them, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Amen. Thanks. Way to go, sweetie. Hey, why don't we pray together? Lord, it's just such a privilege to be here and worship this morning and to read your word, to learn from you. And even today, as we talk about the Holy Spirit filling the house of God, I pray that you'd breathe on us. Lord, it's just my confession that we can't do anything, we can't bring the change, we can't bring the breakthrough, the deliverance, but you can. And I pray that you'd show up, you'd get me out of the way, and instead let your word come to life for every single person gathered here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I'm excited to preach this passage. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, the day of Pentecost. It's the birth of the church, and we actually celebrate it here in a couple weeks on Pentecost Sundays, May 28th. And I'm just excited to dive into the text because I believe this is fundamentally a story of hope, hope for what God is doing and is planning to do all across the nation to the earth, including each one of you. But here's the thing about hope. I don't know if you found this. You know, most people start off in life with hope. You know that? But then this thing called life happens to us, right? We start off with hope, but then we have expectations that aren't met and something happens where we begin to lose sight of our hope it becomes eroded. I, I was thinking about this. You know, I, I know we all have our stories and um, I, I thought of actually a, a kind of funny example from a year ago where I had this really op cool opportunity to go sailing with my father-in-law. Now, many of you know Rick Buescher, who served this congregation so faithfully for so many years, leading out in our listening prayer ministry. And uh, just such a delight um, to, to be in family with him and Diane. Um, but, you know, you may not know this about him. He's also like a big outdoorsy guy. And I love being outside as well. I love the outdoors. And I got a new insight into this because um, Rick grew up in Australia and we got to go visit for the first time as a family this year. And it was amazing. I, you know, it, they, he grew up on the state of Tasmania. It's this island. It's like water everywhere, bays, mountains to hike in. And, you know, really cool place. Grew up on the water, sailing, fishing, all that kind of fun stuff. 
Now, I grew up in Kansas City, and I love Kansas City. It's a wonderful place to live. But if you look on a map, what you're not going to see is a lot of water. It's really, really far away from the water. Good football, not good water. And so anyway, I grew up in Kansas City, and we don't have oceans nearby, and even lakes are kind of hard to come by. Uh, There was a scientist a few years ago who did a study, and they found that the state of Kansas is, in fact, flatter than a pancake. I don't know how you get that research agenda, uh, you know, approved in a university, but they, they, if you could take a pancake, stretch it out the size of the state of Kansas, the pancake would have more hills. What that means for lakes is they look more like swamps. So I didn't grow up sailing and wasn't a big part of my life. And, and so a couple of years ago, Rick got this tiny little, uh, you know, 11 foot sailboat and he's been taking the kids out on Lake Waco, teaching them how to sail. Been a blast. And anyway, about a year ago, we thought, oh, this is my turn, you know, recapturing my lost childhood. I'm going to go sailing. And sure enough, the day comes around, and it's this really windy spring day in Waco, like we've been having lately. Really windy. You know, maybe, maybe too intense for something that we take the kids out on, but, you know, two grown men, what can go wrong? And so <laughs> we get on this boat, and we get out, and, and we get going. And sure enough, when that wind catches the sail, we are flying across the water. I mean, it is a blast. It's an adventure. The wind is in your face. I mean, it's just so much fun. And we're zipping along the lake when all of a sudden, I'm just having a grand, grand old time. All of a sudden, from the back, I hear Rick go, oh, no. Now, I got this thing in life where if the pilot of an airplane or the captain of a ship says, oh, no, I get a little worried. You know, I'm like, what, what does that mean? And, and so I turn around and I look and I discover that the tiller had broken off the back of the boat. Now, if you're not a boat person, the tiller is the steering wheel. So it's like you're driving down the highway and then you pull your steering wheel off. Like you say, oh, no, in that moment. Like this is not what's supposed to happen. So now we are hauling across Lake Waco with no way to steer. It's windy. It's stormy. You know, and we're, I'm like, what's going to happen? Now, fortunately, it's Lake Waco. I don't think I'm going to die. But still, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a fun day. And we're just zipping along in our own oh, no moment. And I think that story, it's such a good metaphor, right? You know, it's like you're cruising. Life is an adventure. And then, oh, no. <laughs> Something changes. You go from a grand adventure to being at the mercy of the wind. And it can happen really quickly. Now, in our case, just to, to close out the story so I don't leave you hanging we end up on the far side of Lake Waco on a beach that you have never seen before. And there is nothing around it. We get out of our sailboat and I step into mud that's like this thick. I think it's going to eat me. But Rick had found, you know, there's this little tiny pin. He's like, if we could just find a pipe, we can bend it back and get back across the other side. And so he prayed. He's like, Lord, send us a pipe. The funniest prayer. Uh, There is nothing on this beach. We walk down and the only thing we find is this old rusty pipe that's the exact size we needed to get back across. Still to the day, one of the weirdest miracles I've ever had. God just wanted to give me a sermon illustration. Uh, It's a lighthearted story, obviously. Uh, Maybe a metaphor for capturing what happens to us in life sometimes when what we think is going to look one way turns out radically different and we're left feeling out of control, worried and unsure. Now we can get deeper really quickly with this story, can't we? It could be something much more serious. It could be a diagnosis for you or a loved one. It could be something related to your work. Maybe something's happened. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe a bill came due that you were not expecting and it threw your family finances into question. It could be a relationship not working out the way you thought it would, conflict in your family. It could be not getting into the school you thought you were gonna get into. I mean, I just know from my years of pastoral ministry, if I could sit and talk with each one of you, we all have our moments, don't we? 
We all have our own no moments. We all have these times in life where we had expectations of what something was gonna be and that's not how it turned out. What we thought was gonna be an adventure turned into something different. And it's in those moments that we all face that we're tempted to lose our hope. And this morning, one thing I love about the Pentecost story is it is talking about how God breaks into our world and overcomes our expectations to work something entirely new. And it doesn't mean that we don't grieve the places of pain where things don't work out. Jesus is with us in those places, but what he's also wanting to do is give us a fresh perspective today and a new source and a new grounding for our hope that is not in our circumstances, but in him. And so I wanna take a moment and I wanna look at Acts chapter two and I wanna go back through our passage because this loss of hope, it can happen on a personal level, but also happens on a corporate level, doesn't it? You know, it's just easy to look at the world and we get concerned. And who in this room hasn't been watching the news at times and been like, man, what's going on? Where are things headed? We feel worried. We feel concerned about the direction. We're like, what's going on in our nation? What's going on in the church? We're tempted to feel these things. And I believe that just as the Holy Spirit for you as an individual this morning wants to restore hope, what he's also wanting to do is give us an inside look into what his plans are. Because Church, I want to tell you something. I have so much hope about the hour that we live in. I'm so excited that I get to be alive in this moment, witnessing and proclaiming the name of Jesus. I am so convinced that the Holy Spirit is, is moving. I'm not saying that to say that I don't see that there's problems in the world. I just see that God is up to something powerful and it is a privilege to be a part of his purposes in this hour. Yeah. Amen? Amen? So let's look at Acts chapter two. I want to go back through it. We're going to start off in verse one. When the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place. Now, whenever you read the Bible, it's always important when you see words like they, that you go back and figure out who they are. So who are they? Why are they here? Why are they all together in one place? And what's the significance of the day of Pentecost? I'm gonna take a few minutes here and explain all this because it's critical for understanding our story. So they, in our story, are the remaining followers of Jesus after his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, this is wild to me. I mean, these are people, many of his disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus, everything. They, they cashed in their future. They let go of their career. They moved away from their families. They turned down opportunities so that they could go be with Jesus. Why? Well, they saw something. They, they recognized that this man is not normal. There's something unique about him. He's worthy of following. And I know that's many of us in this room. We've encountered Jesus in that way. So what do you do? You say, yes, I'm gonna follow you. But what were their expectations about what Jesus was going to do? You see, on the one hand, they followed him because they saw who, they was, who he was, but they also followed him because they thought he was gonna do something pretty specific. They recognized that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. And this means he was a promised king that was gonna come and restore the people of God. Now you gotta remember, at this time, the people of Israel had been oppressed by different governments for 600 straight years. Civil, civil war, all kinds of horrific things that had happened. And they'd been under Roman rule now for about 100 years and there was no end in sight. And it wasn't just the Romans. There were these corrupted local kings. There was a temple authority that was not really interested in honoring God. Basically at every level, there was oppression and injustice. And the people of Israel were crying out to God for a breakthrough. And as they searched the scriptures, they realized that God had made a promise that he was gonna send somebody who was gonna be like King David that was gonna reestablish Israel and restore the people of God. So think about it from their perspective. What are they anticipating Jesus is gonna do? They're gonna follow him 
But then he's gonna show up and he's gonna march into Jerusalem. He's gonna gather an army. He's gonna overthrow Roman oppression and he's gonna restore Israel. That's what their expectation was. And I mean, you know, he can heal the sick. He can multiply food. He could call down fire from heaven. Like he's not intimidated by the legions of Rome. And so they correctly identified the power and the authority of Jesus, but they misunderstood the purpose of Jesus. And so what were they thinking? They're thinking when he comes and restores the kingdom of Israel's, it's gonna be awesome and we're probably gonna get a really cool job, right? Like, yeah, we're, we're his boys. We're the ones who, who walked with him and then finally when he comes into his glory, now it's our turn. We're gonna get these nice government positions, these places of honor, like that's what they're thinking. So of course I don't wanna be a fisherman anymore. I get to go be a governor, right? One of my favorite, like deeply ironic stories in scripture, you can find it in Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 40. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem where we know he's going to be crucified. And the disciples, they don't get this yet. So James and John are arguing with each other about who gets to sit at his left and his right when he gets to Jerusalem and enters into his glory. And they're sitting there thinking like, I get to be the defense minister, I get to be the prime minister. They're arguing about that. And Jesus the whole time is sitting there recognizing that the person on his right and on his left are gonna be common criminals crucified next to him. I don't know that you wanna sit on my right and my left. They didn't get it. And so things, when they show up to Jerusalem, at first everything goes to plan. You know, we had Palm Sunday a few weeks ago and you had the crowds gathering and they're saying, Hosanna, they're recognizing Jesus as king. He goes into the temple, he starts to confront. I mean, I would think from the disciples' perspective, their expectation, this is the moment, it's all starting. This is when the revolution begins. A few days later though, their world is radically changed. One of their very own betrays Jesus, one of their friends. Jesus is arrested, crucified, and dead within 24 hours. Now, can you imagine like you're sitting there in that moment, everything you thought about what the world was gonna be, everything you thought about the future of your people and your own personal future, everything gets turned upside down. Nothing makes sense anymore. Their expectation of who God is and what God was gonna do was shattered. To use my metaphor from earlier, it was a grand adventure to go see Israel restored and the tiller fell off the back and they're left adrift. And for three days, they're sat, they had to sit waiting I think Holy Saturday is one of the craziest days in the church calendar. It's the moment after the crucifixion, before the resurrection, where the disciples are just forced to sit and wait. And I, I would imagine in that moment, they're asking questions like, did we just miss it? Was this all a fraud? You know, is God who he said he is? And I don't know about you, but that happens in life, doesn't it? When expectations we had of God don't come the way we thought it was going to, it raises all kinds of questions internally for us. And they're sitting there wondering, like, did we just make a really big mistake? Maybe here you've made some radical decision for God and you thought everything was gonna work out. I gave generously. I just assumed that I was gonna get the financial breakthrough I needed the way I thought it was gonna happen or whatever the case may be. I mean, I, I think it's a pretty common thing. But God doesn't come through the way we think he's going to. And we're stuck grappling with our expectations. Now, in this case, we know what happens, and I think this is a word for all of us. Jesus is raised from the dead three days after he's crucified. And in that moment, he altered the course of human history. He made a way for every single one of us. He always had a bigger plan in mind than the expectations of his disciples. He was working something greater. 
And he shows up, he conquers sin, death, and hell as he bodily raises from the dead. I mean, it's this incredible moment in human history. And now on the one hand, it starts to click for the disciples. They start to realize that our expectations of what God was going to do was too low. He had something bigger in mind. But then in that moment, they're forced to grapple with a different problem. Now they're forced to grapple with the question of their own failure. Because in that moment, when Jesus went to the cross, the disciples, every single one of them had to grapple with the fact that they were not as strong as they thought they were. They deserted Jesus. They denied Jesus. They didn't stand up with him in his moment of need. And their world just gets turned upside down. Their entire understanding of who God is gets turned upside down. And they're left sitting there thinking, he's not a fraud, but maybe I am. He was right the whole time, but I'm not the person I thought I was. And I think one of the most beautiful passages in scripture are the stories after Jesus is risen from the dead, the way he goes back and one by one restores his disciples. He said, I knew the whole time. I'm not surprised, Peter. I told you you were gonna deny me. I'm not surprised by your failure. You, you didn't understand who I am and what I was doing. And he, he calls him back and you can read the story in John chapter 21. It's beautiful of Jesus restoring the disciples back unto himself. And that sets the stage for the book of Acts. So this group of disciples, these are people who within, and this all happened in, a, in, a, in the span of like 50 days, not a long time. The world got turned upside down. Their expectations got turned upside down. They were forced to reckon with their own failure. I mean, does this sound familiar to anyone else? Isn't this our life so often? And here they are. After all of that, in a very short amount of time, they have no idea which way's up, which way's down. And now we're gathered back with Jesus. Acts chapter one, verse six through seven, tells the disciples, and I just think this is hilarious. After all this has taken place, what I just shared, the disciples look at Jesus and they're like, all right, now are you gonna restore the kingdom of Israel? And I just picture Jesus being like, oh gosh, you know. <laughs> really guys? Like after all of this, how many times do your expectations not have to work out for you to recognize that maybe you missed what I was doing? Maybe what you assumed I was going to do is not what I was going to do. And he looks at him, he's like, guys, it's not for you to know the times. Some of these things, I'm not gonna tell you right now. What's he saying to them? And I think this is his message to us. I don't want your faith to be in your circumstances. I want your faith to be in me. I don't want you to trust in the way you think I'm gonna move. I want you to trust in me who is going to be the one moving. I want you to be sensitive to the way that I'm gonna bring the breakthrough on my timing and trust me that I know what I'm doing. If I know anything in following God, it's that his way is better than mine. Amen? It's my testimony, and I'm guessing many of you, that I'm really glad God didn't do things according to my expectations. I'm really thankful. The question is, can we keep our eyes on him, or do we lose our hope? Do we lose sight of what he is doing because he doesn't move the way we think he's going to move? Right? And so that's where we are here at the Pentecost story. And then Jesus tells him, he's like, Hey, I'm not gonna tell you the whole plan, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to wait here. I want you to pray and I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit to you. And then he goes up into the clouds. He got tired of all the questions. He's like, all right, guys, <laughs> just kidding. He goes up into the clouds. Hey, and credit to the disciples, because what did they do? They waited. 120 people, they stayed and they waited. They said, okay, at this point, I mean, think about it from their perspective. Their career path just got flipped. They have no idea what's gonna happen next. Jesus is in heaven now and they're left wondering all they needed to do was the last thing he told them to do. And so they obeyed him and they waited. 
And that set up the condition for Pentecost. This is a group of people that even after their world got turned upside down, they had faith in the person of Jesus to obey the last thing he said, and they waited for him to show up and bring the breakthrough. Amen? So when is this? The day of Pentecost. And we'll get back to the story here in a second, but I want to take a moment, and Pentecost is a really cool holiday. It's one of three major Jewish festivals. And on Pentecost, we celebrate a couple things. It's 50 days after the Passover, and it celebrates the beginning of the harvest. And so, you know, like basically the food comes into the house. You take the very first fruits of the harvest, and you say thank you to Jesus because you know he's going to bring the rest. But what Pentecost also celebrates is when God gives the law to Israel. And if you think of Israel's history, they were a group of people that had been redeemed from slavery. They were wandering in the desert and God called them. And he used this guy named Moses. He took them to a mountain and there at Mount Sinai, he gave them his ways. He said, now you are my people. You're no longer a group of wandering slaves, but you're set apart to me. You are my people. I'm gonna teach you my ways, come follow me. And that's when God gave them the law. So still to this day, that's what's being celebrated during this festival of God giving the law to his people. So I think it's so cool to tie our story together that it's on the day of Pentecost with this group of people that had no idea where they were going or what they were doing. They were waiting on God to show up and that's where our story takes place this morning. And so let's go back through what happened. Acts 2 verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. I mean, isn't it just amazing? Can you imagine you're at life group all of a sudden and the house is shaken, you know? If it's like a wind blows through and fire falls on people. I've heard of stories like this before. I haven't experienced this myself. I've been in environments where the presence of God shows up and there's just nothing like it. I've heard of stories of evil people experiencing as though the room were being shaken. It's so cool. So there's, a, there's an obvious wow factor to this story. But it's also super significant what happens here. Why was there a wind and fire and the room being shaken? And the answer is that when God showed up to his people in the Old Testament, this is what announced his coming. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, fire descended on the top of the mountain and the whole mountain was shaken. That was a sign of the manifest presence of God who was there and was going to teach Israel his ways. So what's happening on the day of Pentecost? God is showing up and he's making a new covenant with his people. God is showing up and he's once again saying, you, the church, are my people. I want to teach you my ways. And it's the same symbolism that we see in the Old Testament is happening again for the people of God. And the main difference that I can see in the Old Testament, the fire would fall on an object, but in the New Testament, the fire fell on the people. Where now the fire of God is not resting on the mountain, but it's resting on each one of us because the Holy Spirit is saying, my new covenant is inside of you. I'm gonna come and live within you and I'm gonna teach you from the inside out what it means to be my people living my ways. Hallelujah. It's such a powerful moment. It's the birth of the church and it's why we're here this morning is what began at Pentecost. But then we get to verse four. I'm gonna read it. After all this really cool stuff, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? So I can understand why there would be wind and fire. You know, it's this really cool Old Testament imagery. But why is it that on the birth of the church, the spiritual gift that's deposited is the gift of tongues. Like, what's the significance of this? 
And I think it's a really interesting question. For those who've been around church world for a while, you may be familiar. The gift of tongues has at times been controversial. You know, there's people that say, is this for today? And um, here at Antioch, this is something we absolutely believe and would love to talk to you about it, of how God uses this gift. But it's something that, and I get it, if it's not something you've ever experienced before, it can feel a little bit strange. And so I think it's interesting, like why would God choose to give this gift? What's the significance of this moment and the gift of tongues? What does it mean? And this morning, uh, this is not gonna be a tongues message. I love preaching on tongues. And uh, Mick Murray and I, we, we host a podcast called Ideology. and We've done episodes on tongues. So happy to talk about it with you another time. But today I'm not gonna be getting into, you know, the how or the what of the gift of tongues. But what I do wanna do is take a moment and take a step back and ask the why of tongues. And I think that gets lost maybe in our controversy at times or our questions about tongues. We lose sight of why would God give this gift? And I gotta wonder if we understood why, maybe that'll teach us how to do the what, right? So why? Why the gift of tongues at this moment? Of all the other spiritual gifts, why was the birth of the church not announced with a bunch of people getting raised from the dead or the sick getting healed? All that happened later, but why tongues? And to understand this, I think we gotta go backwards in our Bible a little bit to Genesis chapter one through 11. And the Genesis story, uh, you, you can't escape it if you go to Antioch, but I'm gonna recap. Chapter one and two, it describes God creating us and who we are intended to be. And I love our series title, Union, Communion, and Partnership, because I think that is the outline of Genesis one and two. We are a people that are made for union with God. We were intended to walk in closeness and fellowship with him. We were made for communion with one another. And if you, if you look at the story in Genesis, God placed his people in a garden and what they were given to do is tend his garden and extend it across the earth. God designed us to be people that take his rule and extend it across the earth together with him, with one another, bringing his peace, his beauty, his provision, and his life. That's always been God's plan for us. But then sin is introduced in the world in Genesis chapter three, and the union, communion, and partnership is ruptured. Our union with God is broken. Our communion with one another is broken. If you keep reading in Genesis, we read stories of violence. We read stories of entire cities being formed on violence. And all that leads to is we are no longer capable of partnering with God and his purposes. Instead of extending his beauty and his peace across the earth, we bring death and destruction across the earth. And the whole episode concludes in Genesis chapter 11, where you see all, of, all the people of the world, all of humanity gathered together in unity in rebellion against God. And it's this kind of strange story at this place called Babel where the people are there, they're all speaking one language and they're building a tower to the heavens and they're doing this in direct disobedience to what God had called them to do. And I think this tower, it's like a symbol of saying, we are not content with God being our king. We want to be our own. We want to be our own gods. We want to do things our own way. And thank you, but we got it, God. Now it's our time. And so they're building this tower up and God sees it, God shows up. And it's this story of God then interrupting their plans, confusing them. And all of a sudden, all this gathered people, they start babbling in other tongues. It's where we get the English word. They're babbling in other tongues. They no longer understand each other. And eventually they're scattered across the face of the earth. And it's this symbol. It's this symbol of when we try to do things in rebellion against God, our own way, it never works out and our plans fall apart in the end. Don't you know that that's true? We start off with our expectations of what we can do in our strength. But in the end, those expectations are frustrated because of the sin that's within us. We are not capable of bringing the life of God in our own power and in our own strength. And that's the story of Babel. 
And if you read Pentecost, what you see is the exact opposite. If Babel was a bunch of people gathered in rebellion against God, think of what Pentecost is. It's 120 people gathered in submission to Jesus saying, God, our plans didn't work out. Our ways didn't work. Our efforts at building our own towers, they failed. All we know to do is obey the last thing you told us to do. Here we are. We're gathered together in obedience to you. And this time, it's not them saying, we're gonna use our power to get up to you. Instead, it's them in their weakness saying, God, we don't have our power. You gotta come down to us. And this time, instead of us going up, instead, the spirit of God comes down. And what happens? Tongues is no longer a sign of our rebellion against God, but now the gift of tongues is a sign of our redemption where God is taking the scattered nations, bringing them back together, restoring them into his life and making them his people. Friends, I'm worried that we live in a world that's enamored with the ways of Babel. When I read this story, one of the things that hits me the most is that I guess when I look at the world around me, I don't know that we think that the ways of Babel are wrong. It's like, yeah, let's do our own thing. And God, thank you, but we got it. You know, I think maybe culturally we could say that God is a commodity. If God works for you, that's fine, but God's not an authority, right? And we wanna be united, but we're gonna be united in our own power. And what we're gonna do is use our power to do whatever it is that we wanna do to overcome whatever the limitations are. Like, and it's all about us. And the way of Pentecost is radically different and saying, no, don't you get it? Your way doesn't work. Read the entire Old Testament. That's the point. Your way doesn't work. You need Jesus. We can't do the things that we wanna do. We can't bring the unity. We can't bring the breakthrough. We can't bring the restoration. And so what is God asking us to do? What does it mean to be an Acts 2 people? It's to throw in the towel and say, okay, I get it. My way isn't working. So God, come. It's to submit ourselves to him and say what this world needs is people that are yielded, people that are submitted, people that are willing to obey the last thing that Jesus said, even when it doesn't make sense, people who are willing to let go of our expectations and our circumstances and instead put our faith in the person and say, Lord, come. And that kind of church, the presence of God falls upon them and he fills them and he restores them. And it's all the things that we want in the end happen, but it's not because we made it happen. It's because he showed up. And what I'm convinced these last few years is that the ways of Babel are not working. It doesn't take much to look around the world and see that the ways of the world do not lead to the life, the hope, and the peace that we claim it does. This message was a little harder to preach maybe four or five years ago, but now it's kind of obvious, right? The ways of the world are not working. What this world needs is an Acts 2 church that does not try to live the way of Babel, but an Acts 2 church that's instead saying, we need more of the Holy Spirit because we don't have the strength that we need to do what God has called us to do. So what does that mean for us? You know, if you go on to read, what you read in this story is that out of this moment, all these different nations hear the word of God and they hear his voice. They hear um, them praising the Lord. And I think it's such a powerful symbol. If you read in your Bible, Revelation chapter seven, verse nine, it's the story of one day, every tribe, tongue, language, and nation is gonna gather before the throne. And what do we see? We see union, communion, and partnership restored. It's our union with the Holy Spirit leads us to unity with the body of Christ and then enables us to partner with God and see his word preached to every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And that's what we're invited into. And just like we read in our story, I love verse 13. It says, 
You know, on the one hand, you have all these people coming to faith. And if you keep reading, you read about how people were, the scripture says they were cut to the heart. And on that very day, 3,000 people were baptized. And so on the one hand, what happens with an Acts 2 church is you see salvation, healing, deliverance for people. And I think we got a foretaste of that last week, church, didn't we? At our baptism bash, just story after story of people who've encountered God. Many of you in this room, this is your testimony. You've met that power. You've, you've encountered that Holy Spirit bringing salvation. I mean, that's what it means to be an Acts 2 church. But do you notice what also happens in this passage is that you also have other people that make fun of you and saying they've had too much wine. <laughs> the world doesn't understand the ways of Pentecost. And to be an Acts 2 people, what we have to be okay with is to set aside our reputation and our control and our expectations and instead say our hope is in the person of Jesus and the Holy Spirit who's working in the church and we're okay if we're not understood because we're convinced that he alone has the words of life. Yes. Acts 2 sets up the rest of the book of Acts. I'm just gonna go through it really quickly. But I think this is a, a blueprint for us. The rest of the book of Acts, it, it's a really weird book if you've never read Acts before. If you're new to scripture, or maybe you've read scripture and you, you've noticed this. It's supposed to tell a story, but there's no main character. Like seriously, I don't understand what Luke was thinking, the author, when he wrote this. You read about this guy named Peter, who's this early apostle, and it really seems like he's the dude. And you read about him, and then around chapter 11, you just never hear from him again, and we never know what happens. And then we introduce this new character, this guy named Stephen, and he seems really cool. Then he dies. Then we read about this guy named Philip, and he's even cooler because he gets to like get teleported from one place to another. God really used him powerfully, and then we never hear about him again. And then finally, we meet the apostle Paul. And it's like, all right, this is a story about the apostle Paul. But then Acts ends where Paul is in prison and we never find out what happens. Like, who does that? There's not another episode. This was written 2,000 years ago. Like, we are left on this eternal cliffhanger of what happened to the Apostle Paul. Like, what kind of story is this? Acts has no ending. It's so abrupt that there are legitimately Bible scholars who think that Luke died while he was writing it because that's the only explanation they can give for why you would not end a book that way. It's a weird story. One thing I find in scripture, though, is that the weirdness often has a really cool point. The reason that there is no human main character in the book of Acts is because humans are not the main character. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 56 times in the book of Acts. And every time you see something cool happen, it's the Holy Spirit moving through a person. What began in Acts 2 continues throughout the rest of the book, where that same Holy Spirit that fell with power is now pushing the church out to be a part of his purposes of restoration across the earth. And here's the cool part. God uses human characters, but the human characters will never be the main character. God uses Peter, and I've got a little slide that shows this. God uses Peter, Acts 1.8, it talks about how my spirit's gonna come upon you. You're gonna be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth. God uses Peter. The spirit fell on the church in Acts 2. Then Peter gets to stand up and preach the gospel. And he was God's appointed person to preach the gospel to Jerusalem and to Judea, along with several of the other disciples. But then it was somebody else's turn. Now God's gonna use Philip to take the gospel to the Sumerians. He's gonna use Paul to take the gospel to the othermost parts of the earth. What's happening here is God is using the human characters to achieve the purpose of God that's bigger than any one of us. And here's my favorite part about the book of Acts is that the story doesn't end. Why does it have no ending? Because it's still going. Church, do you realize that we are still living in the acts of the Holy Spirit? 
The same Holy Spirit is moving in the same church amid the same difficulties of this world with the same gospel message and the same power as part of his same purpose. I don't know what chapter we're in. It's been a few. I don't know how many more chapters are left to write. I don't know how long our little section is gonna be. That, that's what I don't know. But I do know he still wants to use us. I do know we still get to be a part of this story. What does it mean to be an Acts 2 people? It means to live in the story of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And that's the invitation that's given to us today. But one last thing I noticed in this book that I, I, I really hadn't seen before, but I think is relevant to us and our message of hope. The book of Acts, if you read it, this story is almost entirely about bad things that happen. Like it's not an easy time to be alive. You know, if you look at the church, even just internally within the church, they have ethnic tensions in the church. They have divisions in the church. They have leadership problems in the church, all kinds of stuff, huge questions. They don't know what to do. But then if you look at the world around them, I mean, it's even worse. There's persecution. Sometimes it's overt. Sometimes it's less. They lose their reputation. They lose their possessions. The Jews are persecuting them. The Romans are persecuting them. Everybody's persecuting them. There's a famine. There's natural disasters. And then the whole book is written and maybe about five, 10 years before this incredible geopolitical event where the entire nation of Israel was destroyed by the Roman Empire. Finally, this tension got to a building point and there was a, civil, a huge, not a civil war, a huge genocide war and hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed. I mean, it's a horrific story. All this is going on. So you think about it from the perspective of these disciples, theirs was not an easy life. They had concerns, legit concerns. They had loss. They had to grieve. They had to deal with all kinds of stuff in a really incredible way. But when you read the story, what you get is a message of hope. It doesn't gloss over the pain. I'm sure they felt it. Just like I think it's entirely right and healthy for us to grieve the pain that's in our life. It doesn't mean we sweep it under the rug, but what it does mean is that we're invited into a different perspective that sees the work of the Holy Spirit even amidst the difficulties of the world. And there's this little refrain in the book of Acts that I love it. Three times it says, and the word of God continued to spread. Persecution, the word of God continued to spread. Famine, the word of God continued to spread. Divisions in the church, the word of God continued to spread. And I think that would be God's message for us this morning, that no matter what we see in the world around us, the word of God is going to continue to spread because the ways of the spirit are simply greater than the ways of the world. God is not intimidated by what he sees in our culture. Do you know that? God is not intimidated by our circumstances. The Holy Spirit has not finally reached a wall and said, uh-oh, I've led the church this far, but we finally reached a problem I can't overcome. Like that is not what's going on in God's mind today. Instead, what God is looking for is who's going to be a people that will be a Pentecost people that will wait on me when their expectations don't turn out the way they thought, but will still have the faith and the trust in my person to follow me, to obey my voice and let me lead them into my purposes. Amen. Church, that's who we're called to be. And as we say yes to him, the word of God is gonna to continue to spread. Not because of our strength, that's the way of Babel, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit. What's it gonna be for us, Babel or Pentecost? I know my choice. I'm convinced that Babel no longer works and I just want him, amen? I was thinking back to my story, you know, this story of, having expectations, being out on a lake, and then everything changing in a moment, thinking of the disciples, you know, how I'm sure that metaphor applies to their life where it feels like suddenly the back just fell off, you know, my tiller fell off, I'm left out of control at the mercy of the wind. 
But the more I think about it, isn't that the way we're called to live? At the mercy of the wind of the Holy Spirit? God has given us, Antioch, this prophetic word about dropping the oars. And what it means is if you picture somebody in a rowboat just using their power and their strength and their control to do what it is that they feel like they should do. And for us, these are good things. We're not talking about bad expectations or bad things, but it's still fundamentally rooted in ourselves. And what God has invited us into doing is saying, let go of those oars. Let go of your tiller. Let go and learn to live at the mercy of the wind. Learn to let me lead you. Learn to let me guide you. Learn to live where it's not about your control and your expectations, but it's about following me. Maybe living at the mercy of the wind is exactly what it means to be a people of Acts 2. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. (laughs) Several ways we can respond this morning to this message. And I'd love to invite our ministry teams up to the front. Um, You guys can make your way up. And a couple groups I wanna pray for. Um, if, if you're someone here today and you hear this message and you're like, man, I get it, but I got an, a major need in my life, whatever that may be. It could be a physical healing, financial breakthrough, a relational breakthrough. As you hear me talking this morning where, you, you know, my, my illustration of being stuck all of a sudden in the middle of the lake, you're like, that exactly describes my life this, this week. Something happened to me this week. Please do not leave this morning without giving us a chance to pray for you. Come on up. Let's believe for a breakthrough. I actually heard a testimony of somebody who had um, something wrong with a foot that got healed in our lobby before the service even started. So let's believe this morning that the Holy Spirit is present, wants to heal, wants to bring breakthrough. So if that's you, come on down. You don't have to wait for me to finish talking. Just get out of your seat, get up here and let us pray for you. Second group of people I wanna pray for are those in the house who do not yet know Jesus. And you're hearing me describe two ways of living And and you're somebody, you're saying, man, I have never made that decision to follow him. I'm not a disciple of Jesus. I'm not somebody who follows him. I live my life entirely in my own strength. And if that's you this morning and maybe you're sitting there and you just feel it, you feel your heart beating. You're like, I know God is calling me to something. And if that's you this morning, I wanna invite you to surrender your life to Jesus and make that commitment to follow him, to leave the ways of Babel, living out of your own strength and instead enter into the ways of the spirit learning to follow Jesus. And the way we do that is it's very simple. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. It's not a magic formula, but what we're doing in this moment is you are making a decision to say, my life is not my own, but I'm gonna follow Jesus. You're gonna repent, which means you're gonna say, sorry, (laughs) like, God, I'm sorry for living my own way. And you're gonna confess to him that you need him. And this is only possible because he died for you and because he rose again to new life. He paid the penalty for your sin so that you can live and walk in his freedom. So I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. I'd love for you to pray with me and maybe for others, you, you know, you've made a decision to follow Jesus, but you know you're far from him right now. This is also a moment for you to just re-surrender your life to him. So I'm gonna pray for you right now. I would love for you to, uh, for all of us, just to bow our heads and, and, and pray along. So if you need Jesus, pray this. Lord Jesus, just go ahead and pray it right now. Lord Jesus, I need you. I confess that my way isn't working. Just repeat that after me. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for doing things my own way. And this morning, I wanna yield and surrender my life to you. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead to give me new life. And here today, I give and surrender my life to you. 
Amen. You just prayed that prayer. We would love to talk with you. Come down to the front. Tell the person you came with. Stop by our connect room after the service. But we'd love to talk to you about what does it mean to follow Jesus. And one last group, if you're here this morning and you just say, I just need a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit. I've been doing things in my own strength or I've had these expectations of how I thought God was gonna move. It didn't work out. I just feel distant. I feel far. I mean, I know I've been there so many times in my life. There's no shame in that. But let us pray for you. Let's pray and just believe this morning that God wants to speak over you his fresh words of life. So I'm gonna pray to seal our time and just start walking down. If you need prayer, um, start walking down. We wanna pray with you. Holy Spirit, thank you that you fill the church. Thank you, Lord. Your ways are better. Your life is better. Thank you. Thank you that you fall upon us. Thank you that you are in control. Thank you that you lead. And God, any place where we've put expectations on you of what we think you should do and we've missed you of who you really are, Lord, forgive us and help us again as a congregation today. We just wanna obey. We just wanna follow you. We wanna humble ourselves and Holy Spirit, lead us in the way that we should go. And I pray over every person in this room that we'd have a fresh touch and a fresh encounter with your life. In the name of Jesus.